now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Everybody. Good afternoon, one and all, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always, always been in you. I am very excited to be with you here today, each and every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and like I said, any other time in between. But uh, each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of spirituality and our mental health, all within the context of our relationships, our relationships with ourselves, relationships that we have with others, and our relationship with God or the divine. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you'd like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. That address is www.bbsradio.com backslash Reclaiming Authenticity, all one word there, so www.bbsradio.com backslash Reclaiming Authenticity. And if you would like to call in and be part of the show today, I'm always you know, welcoming of callers. Uh, this number is uh, 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break in the second half of the broadcast today. Well, I just wanted to let you know, as I alluded to just a little while ago, that these broadcasts are podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again, or you can go back into the archives and listen to uh, previous shows. So if you're not able to be with us here for the full hour and uh, you need to go back and listen again, or you just want to get caught up on everything, you may certainly do so. Again, just visit the uh, website and you'll find the banner that has a list of archives and you can go in there and you can make your selection. And I just wanted to take time out that um, as we come to the end of this year, um, I just wanted to thank everybody for their support over the past year. And I just want to say that uh, if you haven't done so, you, you know, please take um, the opportunity to continue your support by becoming a monthly subscriber. Now, uh, it's a little caveat here that a subscription is not required to listen to any of these talk shows, but it is greatly appreciated. So again, all you need to do is just visit the website and click on the banner that has subscription and you'll get all the information you need and choose an amount that you feel comfortable giving. And again, thank you very much for your support. Now, um, as I always begin these broadcasts, um, I'm going to continue to do so today that, you know, because people are asking me all the time, just like, what exactly is reclaiming authenticity? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And I say, well, basically, it, it all comes from not just finding one's courage to reclaim that which has always been in you, 
but it really comes from some deep-seated beliefs in myself. And the first one is that uh, all of us come into the world already equipped and graced with everything we need in this life in terms of our giftedness or our skills, our talents, our strengths, you want to call it graces or character traits, and how we live out our giftedness and our talents and strengths and skills is in and through various relationships. And yet here's the irony of it, because whenever we think about it, we often receive our deepest physical, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual wounds in our relationships. You know, and that's just, uh, that's a profound truth. We, we want to act like it's not true, but it is. Wounds occur in and through relationships. And sometimes, you know, we often go along in life and maybe due to some unpleasant experiences, you know, as we come into the world with our giftedness and our graces and our skills and talents and so forth, we may feel that we need to hide our giftedness. We may feel that we need to hide what's unique about us, or we just simply push that giftedness and those skills way down so that others cannot see it and therefore exploit it or ridicule or wound us in other ways. Or even perhaps, you know, over time we were told certain things from other people, such as you'd never amount to anything or whatever other voice you heard telling you that there's nothing special to you. And that just kind of stays with us. And we just go on through life believing that, no, I don't have any gifts worth sharing. I, I don't have talents. I don't have strengths. I don't have character traits and so on and so forth. And we really begin to see ourselves from a place of woundedness. And the relationships suffer because of that, because we're now dealing with ourselves and one another and even God from a place of wounding instead of a place of wholeness, a place of peace, a, pl a, a, a place of, of love and grace. And when we talk about relationships, we don't have to look too much further than just our own families. You know, we, we can also bring in our coworkers. We can also bring in our friends because um, the joy that I have in counseling others is the transformation. Always looking for not just the potential, of the person to find their healing, but also the very moment that the transformation is taking place. Because I know that when a person is transformed either through forgiveness or their own hard work and so forth, and they're working through their relationships that have caused them such pain and wounding, they're now going to be able to transform others by their presence or by the grace that they extend to them, and even their understanding. You know, they, maybe they won't be so quick to judge. Maybe they won't be so quick to not forgive a person because they bring this understanding like, I was once there. I understand. I know what it's like. Okay? And when people find their transformation, they begin to look for the transformation in others, and they begin to treat one another uh, more kindly. But first and foremost, you know, forgiveness and kindness and compassion begins with how we treat ourselves, you know, because we can be, uh, you know, when we are compassionate with ourselves, we can then be compassionate with another person. And whenever we find that forgiveness within ourselves, we then can be more forgiving with somebody else. 
And when we're able to live in gratitude with ourselves and realize that all the decisions that we have made, whether they're right or wrong or good or bad or whatever we want to label them, which labels don't apply, but you know, if we just take a look over our lives and everything that has happened to us, and we're able to understand that, you know, yeah, we could have done things better or we should have done things better and so forth, but as a result, here we are. But not only have these decisions brought us to this point in our lives, but certainly the decisions we have made do not in any way, shape, or form define the end-all, be-all of who we truly are. And when I say who we truly are, I mean we are souls first and foremost. And so whenever we're able to find you know, that we can live in gratitude with ourselves— we then discover how this, this truly opens up our hearts and we're able to see and live in gratitude with others. Well, everybody, how is your heart today? I, I hope your heart is well. I hope you are well. And if for any uh, reason you are struggling today, uh, my prayer is that you will find the rest, the comfort and the peace that you need. Well, in speaking of how and why we may have pushed uh, our giftedness way down inside of us so that others cannot see it, and or believing you know, the, those messages of being told we never would amount to anything, or whatever other voice we heard telling us that there's nothing special to us, today's focus, or, or today's show, I should say, focuses on the illusion that these negative beliefs that you know, when we pay attention to them, they, in a very subtle way, you know, teach us or convince us to start to look for truth about ourselves in all the wrong places. Okay? We we begin to look for the truth of who we are in all the wrong places. In other words, we begin to look outside of ourselves to find those things that we think we are missing. So, Without further ado, uh, welcome to today's show. It's entitled, Count Me In, The Cure for FOMO. Well, have you ever had the fear of being excluded or the fear of being excommunicated or just the fear of being left out or overlooked unintentionally, okay? And and whether it was intentional or by accident, you know, those feelings from not being included in something, in a group or whatever, those feelings of being overlooked can be quite devastating. And many people this time of the year often struggle with the fear of missing out, that am I going to be invited to you know, a family or a company gathering or, or the parties? You know, will I be invited? Am I included? Is my name on the list? Will so-and-so be there? I mean, these are really, you know, big concerns in a world in which inclusion seems to be at the heart of everyday life. I mean, where do I fit? Who do I fit with? And so forth. Yet, what if I told you that you do not need to worry about being forgotten because the truth of who you are lies within yourself? In other words, the reality is that we are already included. We're just not aware of it. 
And this was the problem that 10 boys faced one day when they overlooked one important detail, as well as how that awareness eventually changed their lives forever. Well, let me ask you this. How do you know what truth is? Like, how do you know when you're confronted with the truth? Where does truth connect in you? Where does truth resonate in you? Last week, I shared just a little bit. I have my own way of truth detecting, and that is, you know, in my spirit and in my gut. And many people, you know, I'm sure you've heard this said, you know, may, maybe you even say it, that, you know, I trust my gut. You know, that that's what I use. I'm like, well, that's what I use, too. I trust my gut. I trust my spirit. And growing up, I remember my mother used to say that uh, whenever faced with something, you know, I have complete peace of mind about anything. And this really used to drive me crazy as a young boy. And that was because I never understood what she meant. You know, and, and more importantly, what I didn't understand was that I really wanted her to be a, as upset about something as I was. You know, but to her credit, she never did because she refused to focus on the externals and the situations, but always looked beyond immediate in order to focus on the eternal. And she began to look inward. And that's, you know, that's where that saying came from. I have complete peace of mind about it. Because if she didn't have complete peace of mind about it, forget it. You were not going to change her. Okay, but she learned to look inward for that truth. And it wasn't just looking inward. It was looking specifically beyond her, but it began with looking in her. So for me, whenever I'm confronted with discerning truth in my life, I typically begin by recognizing how a statement feels deep in my soul. Okay. First, I, uh, I tell my something, I tell myself out, you know, something out loud, you know, an utter absurd lie, a total untruth. And then I listen, or I, you know, I should say that I wait for the feeling. And over time, I started to recognize that feeling when truth just, you know, is, is, is not the truth. When something that doesn't sound right or it's an out, outright lie, just how that sits in me or it doesn't sit well in me. And then I tell something, tell myself something about, you know, some truth about myself that is just undisputed. It's just, yes, that's a fact. Okay, and then I listen for the feeling. I, I just sit quietly and, and I just I, I experience that truth and how that is. And that has served me well, because one of the things that I've learned over the years is that the lies and untruths and distress and negative energies weaken us. It weakens us physically, you know, but truth makes us stronger. But still, many people look for truth outside themselves, as if they're part of the cast of the X-Files. You know, uh, the truth is out there kind of perspective. But fewer and fewer people look within to find their truth. And perhaps this is a very daunting task for many people, because perhaps they don't really know who they are, let alone do they really know how to ask the right questions. Well, in other words, you know, you are more than what you have become, even up to this moment in your life. You know, that is your truth. 
and don't settle for another person's definition of you or expectations of you that do not resonate within you. It doesn't resonate in you because it's not your truth. Your truth is ultimately who you are as a soul. Well, there's a commonly told story, you know, um, that really takes into account this this understanding of who we are, and it's often told to explain how we look for truth in all the wrong places. But when we find the truth about ourselves, we are then left with an incredible responsibility that brings us to a freedom like we've never known before. So without further ado, here is the story about the 10th man. Well, in ancient times in India, uh, young boys were often sent at the age of 12 to study with a guru, a teacher, either at the guru's house if the you know, guru was married or in the guru's hermitage if the guru was a renunciate, if he was single. Okay. The boy would stay with his guru for about 12 years, studying the Vedas and the Upanishads, and then somewhere around age 24, he would return home to be married, or at that point, he may choose to remain celibate. Well, this story concerns 10 boys who were studying at their guru's home. The boys decided that they would like to return to their village for a festival and to visit their families. Now, the, the guru was a bit concerned about their going as he wasn't able to accompany them himself at that time. Uh, he just didn't feel right about them being on their own. But one of the boys in the group spoke up and said that he would take responsibility for the group to make sure that they all arrived safely and they would all get back to the guru's home just as safe. Well, the guru reluctantly agreed to let them go, and they started on their journey. Now, along the way, they came to a swiftly flowing river, which they had to cross. And uh, the boy who was leading the group advised, you know, the rest, all of them, to hold hands and let's just carefully cross this river. Let's just take our time here. And they did so. But the current was so swift that the boys were quickly separated. You know, they just, you know, they let go. And some appeared to be swept away downstream. But one by one, as they scrambled up on the banks of the other side of the river, they were dripping wet and they were frightened from their experience, understandably. But once they all, you know, were there, the leader advised them, like, okay, well, let's all line up so we, he could count them to make sure that all 10 had crossed safely. And so the, this leader started to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine. Uh, no, 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 I can't be right. So he had them line up again differently. And the count, again, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And the leader counted them over and over again. And every time, you know, all he came up was with the, you know, the number nine. Nine. Does this mean that one boy did not make it across? 
Does this mean that one boy was lost? Did one boy drown? Or one boy was dead? Well, the boys all ran around in a panic, and they were, you know, looking in and out of the bushes, and, you know, they were screaming and crying for the tenth boy. And the leader, he was so distraught. He was banging his head on a tree, and, you know, he's just like, what, what's my teacher going to say now? What will the boy's parents say? I took responsibility, and now one of us have drowned. Well, nearby, a wise old man was sitting, and he was watching the whole drama unfold. And he understood what had happened, and so he makes his way over to the leader of the group. And the boy poured out his story of woe and weeping and utter despair. Dear sir, I took responsibility for the group, and now one of us is lost, and I'm afraid that one of us has drowned in the river. Well, the old man said to the boy with a big smile, don't worry, I can help you. I know where the tenth boy is. Well, this leader was definitely just a little bit skeptical, but also desperate. And the old man did appear to be calm and, you know, he was sane. So he said, okay, yes, please do help us if you can. And the old man said, okay, all of you, line up again, and I will count you. And the leader thought to himself, well, this is kind of a waste of time because I've counted everybody over and over and over again. But still, they did as this wise man requested because he did seem sane and wise, and they were all in total despair. And so the boys lined up, and, and the boy who had been leading the group took the, his last place there in, in line. And the old man started to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then the leader arrived at the, I'm sorry, the, 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 uh, the wise man arrived at the leader at the end of the line. And the old man said, 10, you are the 10th man. And the leader was elated. I'm the 10th man. The 10th man hadn't drowned in the river and, and he wasn't lost. And all the while, the 10th man was there as the leader himself, but he had gone unnoticed, overlooked, and of course, he was uncounted. And this is really kind of the situation in the world in which we live. We, we count everything we see and perceive, but yet, how often do we forget to count ourselves? And so, therefore, we kind of lose a sense of who we are and, and a search for ourselves. We start to look in all the wrong places and situations and experiences. And yet we are always ever right there. Our very own self, which is totally 100% present and available, standing as, here I am, but overlooked in all of our activities. And this is the reason why the, the counters did not count themselves, because they believed the answer to their solution was to be found outside of themselves. And, and this makes perfect sense, you know, because this, this one, you know, the leader of the group, he wasn't crazy. I mean, he just, he followed his heart and he said, well, after all, where the first counter found the other nine, he expected to find the 10th one out there. 
he just forgot to include himself. And so we often panic and, and you know, we go through traumatic events and we're searching for what has been lost. And sometimes it takes a wise person to point this out to us. For somebody to come along and say, you're not lost. You're, not, you're just not counting yourself. You are included. You're not lost. And someone who's kind of standing outside our situation, somebody who's not caught up in our panic, uh, somebody who knows what our problem is as well as what the solution is. And just as the man fails to see through the near of the experience of himself, this completes the required number, kind of like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Okay, and so again, this realization brought joy and peace and so forth. And this is, you know, true in in all religions because it really speaks. This story really speaks to the heart of spirituality in all things. That we are included, we are not left out, we are not lost, and coming to a realization of who we truly are, like such as we are there. You know, we're not overlooked, we're not forgotten, brings joy and, and peace. But now we have to do something with that joy and peace. Do we just go on our merry way, or are we forever changed by what we have discovered? Well, let's take our break early today, because I really want to hear what's on your heart about this subject. So again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. James Houck, and I'll be back with you in one minute. talking about this uh, 10th man story. As I said, it is uh, something that just 
communicates this wonderful truth. And even though it's set within the context of uh, a Hindu or an Indian story, uh, when I was, you know, told this story, it just really fascinated me because I started to go in five, six, seven, eight different directions with the story and finding all kinds of applications to it. So, um, but before we get into the second half of the show, I just wanted to share with you a word about next week's show. It is another story that was told to me. It was a story about a boy who, 15 years later, realized that the outer world has no real happiness. You know, what brought him happiness from the outer world, such as, you know, he acquired great things, he enjoyed great things, and everything that, that, that he wanted. And while he felt very happy in these situations, he came to the stark conclusion that it's not true happiness that he was seeking. Because, you know, we just don't want to be happy some of the time, or we don't want to be just somewhat happy. We want to be absolutely happy all the time. And what does that mean? How can we sustain that? When we are looking outward, when we're looking for things to fulfill that 24-7, all the time, absolute happy. And the happiness that comes from our experiences in the world, uh, we have to realize that the world is impermanent. That the world is always changing, always uncertain. And, and whether or not we realize this, there's always this subtle feeling of fear. Okay? And the reason why we experience this fear, you know, even though we are happy, is because we know that nothing stays the same. You know, I think it was uh, Napoleon who said, all glory is fleeting. And, and it's true, you know, because I often um, am reminded of this because, let's say, with, to stay with the sports analogy here, that uh, the men and women who, you know, strive hard at their craft in their particular sport, they reach the playoffs, they become the very best in their their league, and they celebrate, as rightly so, they should. But I wonder what happens the next day when they wake up. You know, they might be looking at a trophy or a gold medal or something, some great accomplishment. But I wonder how quickly does that feeling start to fade? That, okay, you've succeeded in this area. You may even be the best in this area compared to everybody else. Now what? What do you do with that? And that kind of a reality is such a letdown for many that it is quite disturbing. Okay? But still, true happiness is an absolute. It's permanent and independent of any external or constantly changing factors. Okay, but what exactly is true happiness? Well, I invite you to tune in next week when I'm going to talk about the another story called The Princess of Kashi. Uh, the Princess of Kashi, K-A-S-H-I. It's a story that bears a striking similarity to Oscar Wilde's picture of the Dorian Gray. And um, if you're not quite uh, familiar with that story, that's another fascinating story of one who falls in love with something external in, in his life. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about what do we do when we are confronted with the truth? How do we recognize it? 
Where does it connect to you? Where does truth resonate within you? And as I shared, I have my own way of truth detecting, and, and that's, you know, I check in with my spirit and my gut. And I uh, shared the story of how my mother would always say that she has complete peace of mind about everything and used to drive me crazy as a young boy. And that's because I just didn't understand where a statement like that was coming from. I never understood what she meant by it, you know, but I, you know, first had to realize that I wanted her to be just as upset about something as I was, but she never was. Okay. And as I got older, I, I began to realize that the reason she never got up upset about something is because she refused to focus on any kind of externals or situations. And she always looked beyond the immediate of what was going on, what was right in front of her in order to focus on the eternal. So what she was feeling inside, and she really trusted that. So when she said, I have a complete peace of mind about something, she meant it. You were not, and I repeat, not going to change her mind if she wasn't convinced. So so anyway, the uh, story of the 10th man that I had shared earlier, it's, uh, it's a story that is commonly told to explain how we look for truth in all the wrong places. But whenever we find the truth about ourselves, uh, we're then left with this enormous responsibility that brings us to a freedom like we've never known before. In other words, we have to do something with this newfound knowledge, this newfound truth. You know, it just, it just brings us into awareness. But then, you know, quickly we have to answer the question, now what? What am I going to do with it? Am I going to do anything with this truth? Is the truth so profound and have I, uh, am I going to be able to integrate it into my life where it's going to continue this transformation? Okay. So the story of the 10th man, you know, it involves these 10 boys who crossed a very rapid river uh, in order to get home to visit their families. Uh, but when they got to the other side, the leader decided to count them to make sure everyone crossed safely. And as I shared, to his surprise and horror, there were only nine of them. Yet when he realized that he forgot to count himself, that's when he understood his error. I mean, he was simply looking outside of himself for the answer. He just couldn't believe it. It was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He just didn't bother to count himself. But when he included himself, as was pointed out to him by this, you know, wise old man, his sorrow was gone and he was filled with relief and happiness. And this is our situation in the world in which we live. You know, as I, I shared, we count everything else. We count everything we see and perceive, but yet we forget to count ourselves because we're going to search for truth about ourselves, that is, we are eternal souls, in all kinds of places or situations and experiences. And yet, we're always right there. We just haven't realized it yet. In other words, we are already eternal souls. We just haven't realized it yet, let alone how, how do you live out that truth? What do you do once you have that realization that I am a divine soul? Well, in this story of the 10th man, it, it just it simply lies profound and universal truths about the progress 
of our spiritual life, like I said, not just in all religions, but also involves a process of how do we go from not knowing ignorance and error to now discovery and joy and peace. And interestingly enough, one of the parallels that I drew from this this story, um, this this process can also be found in the world of psychology, namely when it comes to understanding, you know, recovery from addictions. Right? It's called motivational enhancement therapy, and this particular kind of therapy, at the heart of it, you know, seeks to understand the readiness or the willingness for somebody to change. That's all it does, okay? It doesn't tell them how to do it, or it doesn't, you know, say, you know, this or that. It's just, how ready are you to change? Because again, you know, we, we have these profound moments where truth is, you know, presented to us. Now we're going to have to do something with it. And so, you know, with motivational enhancement, it's like, how ready are you? How serious are you about changing your behaviors regarding your, you know, any drugs or alcohol? Okay, so again, we're going to come back to this, or I should say, we're going to integrate this, weave it into um, these seven stages that are integrated and highlighted in the story of the tenth man. Uh, so let's begin with the first stage. Um, the first stage involves ignorance. Okay, the boys in the story they didn't know that the tenth man was there among them. They didn't have a clue. All right. In other words, they didn't know what they didn't know. And, and we fall into this ignorance, too, when we don't know ourselves as pure consciousness, or I should say the vast self as a soul. And the same thing is true when, when we you know, tie back into, say, motivational enhancement. You know, ignorance. The addicted person lives in ignorance of the extent of his or her dependence on drugs or alcohol. They're blind to it because they think this is normal behavior, but they don't see the damage that's being done. And so, ignorance. And I know that there's a saying out there that says, ignorance is bliss. Not really, okay? It just means ignorance is ignorance. Ignorance is we don't have a clue yet. But, you know, uh, you know again, it's a distorted message. That says, once you move out of ignorance, then you're going to have misery and pain and everything else. But not necessarily the case. Not all the time. Okay? So the first stage involves ignorance. The boys just didn't know what they didn't know. Okay? The second stage, uh, once you move out of ignorance, you move into error. Okay? Because, of course, what you don't know leads to error. So in this story, the 10 boys believed after they crossed the river, you know, that one had drowned because they only counted nine. And so they assumed that not only is one missing, well, then he must have been washed away. He must have drowned in the river. And, and we can identify with this part of the story, you know, when we are ignorant of the awareness of what we think we are or who we think we are, namely that we only identify with the body and the mind. Because I'm sure, you know, we have all said things such as, well, I am tall, or I am short. I am this many years old. I am male. 
I am female. I am smart. My IQ is, or we may say things like, I am sick. I am tired. I am in pain. And because we are ignorant of the truth of who we truly are, we overly identify as nothing more than the body and the mind. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that these things are not true. You know, we certainly have to be aware of the pain and the hunger and the illness and the strength and the exhaustion that is of the body. But as eternal souls, we do need to identify with the pain, hunger, illness, strength, and exhaustion. We are eternal souls, and therefore we're the witnesses of the body. And let me put this into perspective of this motivational enhancement and overcoming uh, addictions, okay? Because we are ignorant of the truth of who we are, our error is going to be in believing that we need a, you know, a drug or an alcohol in order to feel something or to feel nothing in our emotions and or our body. In other words, we search for this outside of ourselves, and we believe that we can't live without them because of the pain we overly identify with, either in the mind and the body, all the while disrupting and destroying the lives of, of us and the people around us. So error is the second stage. We identify as nothing more than the body and the mind. We just simply do not know who we are, and therefore we're in error. But all is not lost. Okay. So the third stage is sorrow. We are sad because we assume that this error is truth. Again, we don't know what we don't know yet. And so therefore, we're going to act in error, which brings sorrow. And again, going back to the story of the 10th man, these boys were sad, every one of them. Because they assume that because they only counted nine after crossing the river, then one of them must have drowned. And they became sad as a result. They grieved. And what are we going to do? You know, it's uh, kind of harkens back to the story I, I shared two weeks ago regarding the washerman and the donkey, who, if you remember, he forgot to bring rope along and uh, he needed to tie his donkey to a tree. So he didn't know what to do. He was just overcome, just, you know, like I'm going to lose a whole day's wage and everything until, you know, a wise person came through and said, sir, I got the perfect solution for you. Just pretend that you are tying your donkey to the tree, but make sure the donkey is watching you. And he knew it was only a ruse, but the donkey did not. The donkey actually believed he was tied to the tree. And again, at the end of the day, the washerman was, again, filled with sorrow because he couldn't get his donkey to move. And he goes, oh, this is terrible. I, I pretended to tie the donkey to the tree, and it, now it believes it's tied to the tree, and now it won't move. What am I to do? And he goes and he finds the wise person and tells you know, his dilemma. And uh, this wise man says, got the perfect solution for you. All you need to do is go back to your donkey and pretend to untie him. But make sure he sees you. And once he did this, then, you know, the donkey believed he was not tied to the tree. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the washerman just said, okay, let's go. And the donkey started to move and he went and delivered the rest of the wash, the laundry, and um, had a good day. 
Okay. So the boys are in the story, they're stuck in their sorrow because they didn't know any better. You know, they just did not know any better. I mean, how can things get better? You know, and many, perhaps you've even said, how can I go on living when I'm in so much pain and sorrow? How can I do this? But you know, there's an old saying that from the moment we realize we are mortal and that someday we will die, that's when we begin to grieve. That's when we begin to grieve, when we realize that, not that the clock is winding down, but we're only given so many years, only given so many days. There's only so many heartbeats that we have, and we begin to grieve that. But then therein lies another profound lesson, that knowing that one day we're going to die, knowing that we are mortal, how then should we live? And in having this realization that we are eternal souls, how do we live this out? Are we going to connect with the body or are we going to connect with the soul? The body will die because the body is mortal. But what do we do with the soul? That's eternal. What do we do with ourselves? And so this brings us to the fourth stage, that the truth is revealed. And it is revealed by one who actually stands outside of this problem, okay? And uh, in the story, it's, uh, it, it is this time that when the truth is told to the boys, but they don't own it yet. In fact, they don't fully grasp it, okay? They're, they're, told, they're told the truth. And the boys realize that no one drowned because, you know, here's the truth. You kept forgetting to count yourself, but this is only half of the issue. So, you know, they, they do what any of us would do, and that is they would check for themselves. And the boys are, are told by the wise men that, yes, here you are, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you're all here, everybody's good. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're shown this by lining up and being counted by this wise man. Man. And because, you know, it's one thing to become aware of the truth. In other words, to believe the truth, that yes, there are 10, 10 of us here. It's quite another thing to experience it for yourself. But until you experience truth for yourself, it remains just knowledge. You're just being told. So regarding ourselves as souls, it is one thing to be told, you are the truth. And you believe this. But it has to go much deeper than mere belief. It takes experiencing this truth as a divine soul, which transforms it from belief to absolute certainty. I just don't believe this is true. I know this is true. Which, by the way, brings us to the fifth stage. Direct knowledge and practicing it. Once the boys realized their error and that all ten had made it safely across the river, then each one of the boys, you know, they were all excited, but they like wanted to take turns counting. And, uh, <laughs> and when they included themselves, they found out that all ten were alive. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And they counted themselves. There is ten. Yes, we are all here. And they went from being told the truth to discovering it for themselves. Okay. And uh, again, ironically, the, the wise man in this story showed them not only what they were not, 
You know, one did not drown, but they also showed what they were. All 10 of you are here. He showed them the error, and then he showed them the truth. And again, for us, we, we need to put into practice this realization that we are souls. We go from being told, yes, you are a soul. Yes, you are eternal. But when you discover that truth for yourself, that's transformational. We act out of our ignorance. We discover our error. We realize the truth about who we are, and now we're going to have to do something about it. And this is a powerful transformational point in the life of a person who is also struggling to overcome an addiction to either drugs or alcohol. And see, there comes a time when they must not only own their truth, but also take the necessary step to become clean and sober and to relearn how to live in healthy ways. In other words, it brings us all back to relationships. And a lot of people have to unlearn the healthy ways of what it was they were doing when they were, uh, when they were not sober, when they were in their full-blown addiction. But letting that go and unlearning, relearning how to live in healthy ways is, is very much a process. But then again, this is how the truth sets us free. And ironically, in this stage, there, therein lies an essential ingredient or a step for us to continue in our awareness. And, and that is that we have to make a decision to act on it. I mean, knowledge, again, is just knowledge. If it's not acted upon and experienced and is used in some way to make a difference in our lives, are we transformed by what we have learned? Well, stage six is, um, you know, it follows, you know, quite nicely here. Once a person realizes their truth, once a person is transformed by it, all sorrow is gone. Okay. And in this stage, the boys in the story have all realized that, yes, we are all here, all 10 of us, no one has drowned. Therefore, who's crying? You know, there's no need to cry. There's no need to grieve. No need to continue in the error of ignorance of the truth. It's, it's just, it's ridiculous. You don't need to do this anymore because now you have the truth. All fear and sorrow are, are gone. And all that is left is this last stage, stage seven. You are then moved into joy, bliss, and fulfillment. Walking in the truth of who you are. A complete transformation of not only understanding your truth as a soul, but also directly experiencing it, and then transcending the fear, the sorrow, the ignorance. And this is, again, a very powerful stage to be in, because once you're in this stage, you can't go back to the way things were in your life. You've been fully transformed. You can't go back and say, well, gee, I don't think I know if I'm a soul or not. It's like, forget it. You can't. You are, you know, it, it's not, you know, well, do I believe this or don't I believe it? It's you are so filled with the certainty of the truth of who you are. You can't go back to the way you are, even if you knew how to do that. I'm convinced that, you know, all that stuff is left, you know, behind us when you reach that point. 
And there's thousands and thousands of people who have found their joy and their bliss as a result of them overcoming their addictions, okay? Because for the most part, they couldn't imagine a life without drugs and alcohol. But now, since they've overcome, since they've cleaned up, since they've gone to rehab, since they now remain clean and sober, they can't imagine living their lives under the influence anymore. Like, what was I thinking? What was I doing? I couldn't believe I hurt so-and-so. And, and, you know, they're so transformed by not only the knowledge, but putting it into practice and unlearning and relearning things in our lives that it's a total transformation. Well, the last part of this um, broadcast, I just want to share with you some core beliefs and transformational aspects of what it's like to go from, let's say, in error, acting in error, inaccurate statements, um, just things that aren't true that people who are struggling with addictions face. And then what does it look like when truth comes in and how a person can continue their transformation? And these are what I call core beliefs, and there's four of them. Okay, so core belief number one of a person who is, uh, let's say, full-blown in their addiction. They might believe that, you know, I'm basically a bad, unworthy person. I'm a bad, unworthy person. And this, this is really the emotional foundation of a person's world. And it's based on family experiences, you know, because they're so filled with feelings of inadequacy and failure. And maybe, you know, the times that they are humiliated or degraded, you know, they can justify that or they see that as, well, that's just something I deserve. And they're committed to hiding the secrecy of their addiction at all costs because of these feelings of unworthiness. But herein lies the transformational truth. I am a worthwhile person deserving of pride and happiness. So you go from I'm basically a bad, unworthy person to I am a worthwhile person deserving of pride. Core belief number two, nobody would really love me as I am. And again, this translates into, well, everybody would abandon me if the truth about me were known. And that everything in my life that goes wrong is my fault. And, you know, it just creates this image of being in charge of life, but that's okay, I don't need help, I'm good, I'm fine. And, you know, others, loved ones in a person's life who's at this particular core belief, they start to feel cut out, or they start to feel pushed away, or useless, or neglected. But the transformational truth, again, can come in and says, I am loved, and I am accepted by people who know me as I am. See, that's transformational because there's no judgment. There's no finger pointing. There's no guilt. So a person goes from, nobody would love me as I am if they really knew who I, who I was, to I am loved and accepted by people who know me as I am. Core belief number three, my needs are never going to be met if I have to depend upon others. And this is where a person feels unloved and unlovable, and they have no confidence that others will love them. 
But the transformational truth comes in by saying, my needs can be met by others if I let them know what I need. Okay, you hear the transformation. Okay? And core belief for, it could be either like the drugs or alcohol is the most important need in my life. And the support and care and affirmation and love um, become distorted through the substance use or abuse and dependence. Okay? And so there's just a tremendous amount of cover-up and lies and deceptions. And these are all used, or I should say, made to conceal uh, a person's uh, substance abuse behavior. But the transformational truth that comes in is, I have many healthy expressions of my need and care for others. And that is very life-giving. Life-giving indeed. So we all have the potential for transformation of understanding who we are as souls. Remember, it's what we identify with. Do we identify as just the body? Or do we identify as the eternal soul within a body? That makes all the difference between living in fear and sorrow versus living in joy and bliss. And truth be told, we all have the courage within us to reclaim that which has always been in us. Well, I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Join me next week as we're going to take a look at how this lasting joy and bliss is to be found within ourselves, and certainly how do we live it out for the rest of our lives. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.